substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred This is the last episode before Christmas, I think Unless suddenly someone calls me up and says Please have me on the podcast. It might be the last one for the year, uh, depending on how I feel coming up to New Year's um, and how how much time and energy I have. I'm joined by my co-host, Josephine. How are you doing? Kia ora. Yeah, I'm excited about this um, podcast today. Um, we've got an interesting guest um, whose topic is very close to my heart. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. And that guest, welcome back to the podcast, Dan. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be back. So for those of our audience uh, who haven't heard the previous episode with you and, and maybe don't know your work, can you just give us a quick intro on where you come from and what you do? Yeah, I mean, so by uh, experience in life and birth, I'm American, obviously. What? And, <laughs> <laughs> but I teach at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. I teach international relations. I was born as a, not born professionally, I was born as a creature of the national security state in the US and I was trained as a strategist to think in those ways and to advise the ruling classes in that kind of mode. Um, but uh, I had always had one foot in the progressive movement in the U.S., even when I was in the military. And I served in the Obama administration. And then in the Trump years is when I came out here. And being a scholar, having distance from Washington, and then seeing um, America basically just go off the fucking rails in the Trump years in a way that exposed that like Trump was sort of a, a byproduct of an ongoing system. Like he what the shock of Trump was that he felt like coming he coming out of left field for a lot of us, right? But then when you start thinking about like, well, what made Trump possible? What is the historical context and what are the distributions of power that lead to somebody like this? You know? You start asking those kinds of questions and you start seeing aspects of history that, you know, your teacher didn't tell you about. And that starts to be really disturbing. Way leads on to way. Eventually you start reading about labor history and, uh, you know, the origins of imperialism and all these things. And um, before you know it, you're writing a book called Grand Strategies of the Left. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> And that's uh, why we have you on the podcast today. Uh, you've released this book just very recently, Grand Strategies of the Left, uh, The Foreign Policy of Progressive Worldmaking. It's something that I think the left, particularly in the West, has really struggled with. Um, I think a lot of thinkers, uh, academics, uh, progressives in the global south have had, been very clear-eyed about uh, the Western imperial project for a long time now. But something that we often fail to grapple with within these systems is how do we turn the ship around? And I'm really interested to hear about your thoughts regarding this van, and especially having been within that system. How have you come to the place where you're like, okay, I, we need to have this, this document. We need to have a, a framework for this. And just to add to that, can I just add to Kyle's yeah. question? So I grew up in, in Kerala, where we are, you know, it's a it's a left-wing communist state in Kerala, sorry, in India, and we grow up with this anti-imperialist perspective. Um, we identify um, Western imperialism as an ongoing system, but then, you know, in the 90s, um, what happened in India is what happened in a lot of 
Global South countries is um, in exchange for loans, the IMF shoved neoliberalism down India's throat. And since that, since then, we are getting media that kind of um, projects the West as, you know, um, you know, purveyor of human rights. And we are, we are, you know, the people, young people in India who grew up in the 90s, um, you know, uh, are just uh, bombarded with media narratives from the West. So it is really important um, that we are clear-eyed about this. And I found myself going back to those discussions that were there around me in my childhood, um, which were critiquing this dominant narrative coming from the West. So, yeah, um, in that light as well, Ben. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, like, the the dominance of the sort of Washington and Western, I mean, Western narratives are subsidiary of Washington narratives to a large degree. Uh, but the ability to sustain that and make it feel like there is no alternative and this is just how the world works. And if um, without American beneficence, the world goes to shit. That that idea, it it requires erasing the view like what Edward Said would point us toward, which is like, who suffers for what we do? You know, we provide security for ourselves, we say, but at whose expense, you know? And the experience of people on the receiving end of IMF loans, you know, that's uh, or or Cold War militarism. We have to erase those voices and those standpoints and those historical memories because if we don't, our narrative cannot hold up, you know. And so this is part of the problem: is like American foreign policy is indexed or anchored on uh, a, an image of itself that doesn't hold up to historical scrutiny. It's not historically accurate, you know? So with the book, it, there was like a, an opening chapter that's basically just documenting the infinite list of critiques of liberal internationalism as it's actually existed. And I don't even mess with, I don't even like fuck realism. Like I don't even bother dealing with that. It's liberal internationalism is the prevailing paradigm for the West for Washington. And so documenting the crimes done in its name and why it's a problem, that is the starting point, making that critique clear and vocal. And then that's the starting point for like, okay, given that, how can we consider a different way? And what what have leftists considered as different ways of relating to the world? In terms of like the 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 origins of the project, I um in 20 the, pres the presidential campaigns in 2020 i was i ended up on four of the campaigns as unpaid advisors sequentially because my candidate kept losing and, <laughs> <laughs> and so the way presidential campaigns in the us work like you know you're you're aligning yourself with a specific person and giving them your best policy advice and then they take it or leave it or whatever but then when that campaign folds the next hot campaign tries to absorb all the talent from the other campaign and so like, as long as you're in good standing, it tends to be the case that you would like hop, hop around. So I, I hopped the shit out of the campaigns in 2020. And what's really Can weird. Can I ask which campaigns? Sorry. <laughs> so I cannot name two of them because of. Uh, so one of the weird things about Washington is like uh, non-disclosure agreements are all over the place. The two that I can name that I don't have non NDAs for is Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro. Cool. So. Those two did not require me to sign NDAs, so I can say that. Uh, 
<laughs> I remember both of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. So like those campaigns, it was a weird moment in time, a unique moment in time in my lifetime where the managerial class of foreign policy wonks, they were uniquely open to alternatives to the, the, the prevailing paradigm in foreign policy. They were uniquely open to to something other than liberal internationalism. The primacy, they recognized that there were a lot of these critiques. They didn't accept all the critiques, but they understood that it wasn't popular. And so they're like, all right, well, what else can we do? Uh, we've got a bankrupt paradigm. And in that moment, there was tons of, of like discursive energy coming out of the left. Even some of it seeped into mainstream media. And the, but none of it was expressed in a grammar that the national security state people could like wrap their minds around. Like it doesn't, like militarism is literally a foreign concept to them. And if you can't, if you can't table the concept of militarism as part of a conversation of foreign policy, then there's no conversation to be had. I mean, like, what are you talking? So like it was a Mars versus Venus kind of um, problem. So in that moment when we were casting around for alternatives um, and I was very low, I was not like influential by any means. And so my voice didn't matter much, but I'm seeing influencers being like, we, we have these calls, these Zoom calls being like, okay, so, you know, what, what are our alternatives? What can we do? Nothing, nothing. They believed, they lived the reality that like in their minds, there is no alternative. So what you ended up seeing coming out of the campaigns, except for Bernie was like a lot of the same, same bullshit. And Biden is is Obama incarnate, Obama 2.0, you know, um, in some ways worse. And so like, that is that that reality is downstream of of a feeling like there is no alternatives. And so like what we needed in that moment was precisely what I ended up writing. It's it is less of a guide for the left than it is uh, trying to force a conversation to happen that nobody really wants to happen between the left and these you know security mandarins. Yeah, it's one of those I don't even know the ecosystems i guess like if we're going to be really broad about it where you just constantly see any kind of more radical progressive even takes not even frameworks just immediately butt, up, butt heads with uh what's considered to be common sense international relations and we see that so much in new zealand you know we've had people from uh, tikawaka the new zealand alternative on here some of the interactions you see with them when they're saying very like standard pacific focused international relations critiques people just don't engage with it e even on the basis of reality they they don't understand about militar militarism in the pacific they don't understand the the dangers of using the pacific as a staging ground for us proxy wars um or the threat of uh nuclear uh staging here it's just not something that enters their thinking about it in any way you know there's a there's a bridge there that just doesn't exist and you know i'm not one to uh, say, oh, we we need to slowly move the status quo uh, into a position where it can do this because you know incrementalism really sucks. Like it, it doesn't; it's not really effective. Our but problems we, are not incremental. <laughs> no, uh, but we do need a way to actively and strategically pull the current common understanding of international relations closer to the realities uh, that people on the ground will be having to live through over the next couple of decades as these crises just get worse. Yeah. And 
in the West, I've what I've noticed is the left is really unable to make the connection between domestic leftist gains or um, the barriers to less leftist gains on the domestic front and its connections to, um, you know, leftist gains internationally. So, for example, you mentioned you were in, you know, two of the campaigns. One was Elizabeth Warren and, you know, the other one was Juan Castro. And I think Juan Castro was trying to be the next Obama, I guess, a little bit. But in any way, um, it's a bit of a tangent. But what I was going to say is a lot of these candidates in the Democratic Party, they will have some interesting ideas for the, you know, domestic um, domestic policies. But what they don't recognize is it's the very the same forces that are causing, for example, the in increased militarism in the Pacific or, you know, uh, internationally, they are creating insecurity, especially in the global south. It's the same forces that are going to stand against leftist gains in the West. And this connection, I think, is not being made by leftists in the West. And this is the, the biggest sort of um, drawback of leftist movements in the West, because they don't, they're not able to make this connection. And once I was, you know, I started becoming radicalized, I, it just took me closer and closer to analyzing foreign policy and international relations and geopolitics, because I feel like we really cannot address, you know, uh, the problems in the global south without addressing um, imperialism, the head of which or is the United States of America. And the saddest thing about this is that they they actually have control over the largest military network or the biggest military in the history of humanity the United States has. And this is not being deployed, you know, even in the democratic interests of American citizens. It is being deployed to secure the profits and the interests of the military industrial complex. And it's the same forces that will stand against, for example, healthcare for everyone in the United States, for, you know, public education, all these things. The same forces that want to profit from people's basic needs are the ones that are causing so much violence in the global south and the current genocide in Palestine as well. So I really appreciate that we have these conversations. We we are having these conversations about what is a progressive leftist foreign policy. What it, should it be? Because people in the in the West they have also been propagandized by this narrative that the Western systems are superior. So I feel like you know the left in the West has kind of moved away from racist narratives, but they still have racism in terms of the systems. They think that their systems are superior, for example, to the systems, the alternative systems that have been experimented anywhere else in the world. And so while the sort of like racist, biological racism is to, an, to a great degree addressed a sort of like civilizational or, you know, in terms of systemic superiority, that mm -hmm. racism still exists. And that's what we see um, reflected in foreign policy. So when the West says these countries are not, you know, these countries are horrible, we just believe it that, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, they're not democratic or something like that. But we don't make the connections 
with imperialism and the history of colonialism and the legacy and the ongoing um, systems that ensure that colonialism continues. Yeah, I mean, the, the, so to your point, at this point, most of the American left, like the overwhelming majority, particularly ones who are like existing in polite society, they have fully invested themselves in what, you know, we would have recognized in another era as like just national security Keynesianism or military Keynesianism, right? They're, they, they're all about Direct, redirecting the the resources and the authorities and the power the power of the state toward great power rivalry with China, and for a lot of them, it's a cynical move or a move of political expedience. Like they think the China threat is inflated, and yet they want to they they choose to reify that or to keep inflating it as part of a cynical calculation to implement an industrial policy that marginally increases employment rates in the US or that provides tax credit subsidies for installing fucking solar panels on your roof like is that going to make everything better what the fuck are you talking about you know even separate from like zero carbon emissions and like how far away we are from all that stuff but just the idea that like you're going to invest in a military industrial complex that you're going to take the, the resources of the state at the level of like trillions of dollars and you're going to pour it into what you say is progress they, they don't say it's progressive very often but like that the supply side progressives in America like the Ezra Klein types the new the Paul Krugman types these are like good people in the American context right in the it has to be only in that local context though because like <laughs> it's relative and these fucking guys they're all about spending a ton of money on capital intensive industries that when you peel back like well why 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 do we need to obsess so much about where semiconductors are fucking manufactured it's because they're thinking about a future scenario where we fight an unthinkable war against another superpower and they want to make sure we can still produce semiconductors to support that war but also for our vacuum cleaners and our microwaves and our TVs so that we can like somehow have this imagined normal life while the while a new nuclear holocaust is happening in the rest of the world as if it's not going to hit us you know and like that's a nonsensical paradigm but there's a lot of progressives who are captured by this way of of thinking you know um i forget what my point was there but it was you got me going <laughs> <laughs> i think this is like one of those things which has become just very very recently has been we've been seeing it play out on the world stage a lot more i was, was going to say like more apparent but it's always been apparent but we're seeing it like from the podium to a larger extent um, i'm thinking about joe biden's uh, arsenal of democracy uh mm -hmm. kind of line uh a few weeks back yeah. where we know that the exploitation to an extent has been pushed offshore you know that that's how imperialism and uh, colonialism and capitalism work uh so that the working class at home and the imperial core are insulated from that the extent of the class warfare occurring and, and that's not to say that it's like <laughs> that people are doing well in the working class in the united states right um yeah, but they're having that, a rough go themselves but yeah, yeah absolutely but it means that leaders like joe biden can say oh we're going to bring back automobile jobs for the american working class and elide the fact 
that they have utterly destroyed the economies in the global south. And so they're appearing to be progressive domestically, but it doesn't really work in a global framework. And to talk about the arsenal of democracy is very much, you know, trying to tie the working class of the United States and the manufacturer of weapons to a, some kind of pro- progressive international doctrine. And it's deeply fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. The real, the I meant to say this earlier, but like the idea that America needs to spend a bunch of money to become a leader again in manufacturing stuff, producing stuff, like you're, it's such an inefficient like way to allocate national resources. But the the farce of it is, especially on stuff like the green economy, you know, and this is where the supply side progressives get captured by like a, a bunk paradigm. But, you know, you produce, say, say, let's say for the sake of argument, America becomes the world leader in green tech, right? China's like so far ahead of the US on like solar and stuff that that's, that's not really, really realistic. But let's say, let's just say, okay. In that case, you have reshored the world's manufacturing in America. You reconcentrated it so it's no longer in the periphery or the semi-periphery of the world system. Manufacturing once again happens in the United States, okay? Manufacturing was the basis for these other national economies to exist as part of the world system. To the extent, it's not been a great deal for a lot of people, but to the extent that like developing economies were developing, it was on a kind of like export-based level, right? If you reshore all those manufacturing sites into the US, who the fuck is going to buy the shit that you produce? You're creating a crisis of overcapacity for yourself in the best case, you know? Who can afford to buy American green tech once we've created oversupply in green tech, you know? And in the meantime, we're undercutting China. China has excess capacity in this stuff right now, and we're discouraging others from importing it. We're discouraging others from adopting China's green tech, and we're preventing China's green tech from coming into the U.S., right? So like, we're delaying the transition to a green economy in the name of great power rivalry, but we're also reshoring the entire like manufacturing export-based political economy that was kind of the only rung on the ladder for most developing economies. And we're taking that and putting it back in America. We're telling them to go fuck themselves, go fuck yourself, rest of world. But also we've created a lot of manufacturing output that we need to dump somewhere. So please buy our shit. You know, like what... And they're going to use IMF loans to buy it. And, you know, like we're trapped in a fucking nightmare. Like we haven't, our, our national policies, even if they work on their own terms, they end up self-sabotaging when you put them in a global context, you know, and that's in the best case. In the best case, these policies are self-defeating, you know, but it could be actually much worse than that. Um. So if manufacturing cannot be reshored to the United States, obviously, you know, the people who are saying this uh, do not understand how capitalism works, right? <laughs> capitalism is about creating profits and it will move to wherever the costs are, you know, minimal. And in the case of China, where, you know, the infrastructure is so amazing that it is conducive to manufacture stuff there. Um, you know, United States has crumbling infrastructure, um, it's just not going to be a rival to China in, in any, you know, I, I can't even imagine that scenario. Uh, but if that's the case, then what is the future of the United States economy? Because at the moment, 
it's not looking very bright. How is United States going to, you know, address its um, its its looming issues of, of poverty, of of homelessness, of um, insecurity, of a bleak future? Um, uh, all these things are interconnected, right? Um, yeah. We're seeing that the life expectancy of of the United States is declining, and United China has surpassed it. It's just looking really bleak for the United States. So what is the future? It's, it's a bit of a tangent, but what is the future for the United States economy and how can it address its problems? Can I have a, a moment of your time, Josephine, to talk to you about the forever war? <laughs> <laughs> political it, this is where, this is where it is, right? Yeah, yeah. So this, is, this, this is, you know, there is no bright future on the horizon. This, if the, I think the better you understand you know, how international political economy works, the better you understand how capitalism works, the more you're just deeply, deeply pessimistic about our horizons right now, or like what what the future holds. You know, the, the most realistic thing for the US is that it like turns fascist. It tries to establish a Herrenvoke social democracy, which is to say like an ethno-nationalist state where it's full employment for people who fall into that like white largely male favoring hierarchy you know and it's it's screw everybody else and those attitudes already exist in america they're already very prominent in america that's what you know trump is an expression of that stuff and like that's going to already the national security state provides for american security by taking security from others by denying self-determination to other, like the Pacific is the worst about that. It, it's worst in the Pacific about this, like denying self-determination to others so that you can do your like grand fetish strategy of like sustaining these wars and shit. And so like, that's, it's all just like kind of a dead end. Like the only real hope for America is that you get some kind of, you know, growing social democratic coalition within the democratic party which is sort of happening, but actually the Gaza war stuff and APAC Israel money is really putting progressives on the defensive. It's like we had big momentum toward a social democratic shift in the Democratic Party. And now it seems like that project is a little bit on pause or, you know, being delayed. But that's the real hope. And then you get a Bernie or AOC type in the in the presidency, which again, also very hard to imagine. But if you do that, then you can start using the power of the state to fix how the power of the state has been used in the past, um, which includes in, like relating to the world in a way that accounts for repair, you know, like the amount of damage that we've done to the global South or the like ongoing, there's ways, there's proposals for how to stitch together kind of like restorative justice and social justice and economic equality in a way that's forward looking and not just like self flagellating, but actually like, you know, this is where green financing and stuff can come in and can play a role. Peace, peace building on various, various levels. And so we'll stop writing. I'm sorry on the bombs that uh, yeah. we're dropping in the global. <laughs> on south. our rainbow bombs. Yeah. But yeah, I just, um, you mentioned how, you know, the uh, United States is making insecurity in the rest of the world to secure itself. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think so. I think it's actually making itself insecure as well, right? It's not, oh, it is. That's yeah, how it, so, it thinks. It thinks that it's sacrificing others for itself, 
what it's really doing is making a nightmare for us all to live in. Exactly. You know? So the you know, the U.S. foreign policy is not only bad for the global south, it's actually bad for working class people in the United States. And, you know, this money, this billions of dollars, the amount of money that this Biden administration has just been transferring for, you know, to essentially, I mean, in the name of Ukraine or whatever, they're transferring this money to the pockets of the shareholders of the military industrial com complex in, in, in the form of um, contracts. Um, defense contracts and that, it's just making things in the United States worse and worse and worse and worse. And so, yeah, for me, it is chaos. The future, if you go down this path in the United States, we are actually seeing a crumbling in empire. Um, we are seeing global power shift happening, de-dollarization happening. Um, the countries who have been, you know, suppressed by the United States over the, you know, most of the post uh, post-World War II period, and now forming new alliances to get around um, United States domination. So, yeah, I think it's it's bad for not only the rest of the world, but the working class people in the West. And this is what I think Western leftists fail to re recognize, that actually Western foreign policy um, is bad for them as well. And it's the same in New Zealand. There's yeah. one more point. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I I agree with all of that. Yeah. Like the there's an argument that the, nobody on the left makes so with sufficient seriousness that like peace and establishing peace, which means demilitarizing foreign policy to a very great extent, is a prerequisite to worker power. It's a prerequisite to global solidarity because the forces of the national security states across the world are in opposition to labor power are in opposition to democracy. And so like peace is the like lodestar or the focal, like it's the thing that unlocks the ability to do so much that the left wants to do, you know? Yeah. And the other thing was also, I really don't have a hope or, you know, uh, any sort of, yeah, hope is the word for someone like AOC or Bernie Sanders to actually change the United States uh, foreign policy. Just look at what Bernie's been talking about in terms of the genocide in Gaza and the AOC and all of them seem to have folded um, to Biden. And in my view, I don't know if it's APEC money. Maybe it is. But in my view, it's not really APEC money. It is the Democratic Party and the Democratic establishment, which is just the B team of, you know, um, the industrial what do you say, the corporatocracy of the United States that is standing in the way. So in my view, Democratic Party doesn't hold much hope for the left in the USA. And Bernie and AOC are actually amazing examples of the failure, in my view, of the so-called progressives in the West. I mean, they all, Bernie has just supported Biden's, you know, policy on Israel, for example, which is, you know, he just keeps falling and falling and falling into greater depths of um, just, you know, just makes us more despondent to see Bernie like this, because a lot of us poured so much hope and energies sitting in far corners of the world. We were fighting for Bernie, hoping that Bernie would be, you know, the change we want to see, because people like me, we recognize that what stands in the way for us in the global south is 
actually the United States foreign policy, like um, when India got independence then in, you know, 1947, the first election um, in my state, we got the Communist Party in power with a huge majority. Suddenly the CIA starts appearing in Kerala. So it's like Surprise. Any, <laughs> anywhere in the world where there are grassroots movements for, you know, progress, ordinary people, working class people, uh, in anywhere in the world, whether it is in the West or in the global South, the same powers will deploy this vast network of military with the most advanced, you know, weapons, and also along with that economic instruments like the IMF to derail our movements. So Bernie Sanders and, you know, Western left have been extremely disappointing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just... At this point, I'm just asking Bernie to fuck off. Yeah, well, that's all very grim and uh, not wrong, I suppose. The uh, the Democratic Party, the, I mean, so I think the left made a mistake investing their hopes and dreams in another human being because, like, that's just not how structures of power work. Like, you know, even when you have a super empowered individual, he's super empowered because he's positioned in a certain way in a correlation of forces, you know, like it's, and so uh, the idea that like Bernie would be our great savior was not realistic, you know, um, he's, he's done great in many respects and more than we probably deserved given our politics, but that's like, that was not wise to, to bet the farm on that. But like, what's the, Emmanuel Wallerstein had this thing about um, the world systems theory guy. His argument was like, Elections and democracy are defensive tactics, you know? So as you strategize for power, you don't abandon your defensive flank. You vote. You fucking vote for the least harm, the, the least worst, right? But if the idea that that is what's going to be your path to salvation, that that's going to be your path to power, that's not realistic, right? So electoral politics is simultaneously something that you have to play and hold and like recognize that it is nothing but a defensive tactic. You know, your sources of power are going to be elsewhere. You just don't want the electoral terrain to tilt too hard against you because as much as Biden fucking sucks, it's going to get way worse, way fast if it's Trump. And we know, like, we know this from the Trump years. We know this from the documents he's issuing right now about how he's going to purge government itself. I mean, like, he's going to create a fascist state. America's not a fascist state yet. It's just got the architecture to support a fascist state ready to hand over to the fascist. You know, there's a difference there. And so, like, we have to, like, I would support getting somebody in there other than Biden, almost anybody. Right. But if it comes down to November 2024 and it's only Biden and Trump, you're a fucking idiot if you're voting for Trump or if you're voting for nobody, you know, but just fight voting for Biden should not give you any solace. There's no peace of mind in that. You know, these last four years have been like pretending like history is not even happening, like everything's all good, you know. And so strategy or building for power has to come from somewhere else. You know, and the best hope that I've seen it was the building of a social democratic movement that is, I don't know, nowhere at this point. You know, I, honestly, I think other parts of the world system outside of the U.S. might be the bright spot. You know, Lula in Brazil or something. That's, that's promise there. 
I want to bring us back to the book itself. Uh, you know, we've, we've been talking about pessimism for uh, <laughs> the future quite a bit. Uh, but I think it's really important to, you know, talking about these grand strategies, and, and that's in the title of the book as well, and the principles from which we can build those. Like, what, what principles do we use to find those power bases and those alternative strategies outside of electoral politics, which just seems so defunct at this point in the West? Yeah, I mean, so this is slightly askew of the book, but Eric Olinwright, who died not too long ago, he had this thing, he had, what was it called? Realistic utopias or something like that. Um, but he had argued that there were three ways of doing uh, a kind of socialistic strategy, right? And it's like, you one is um, building power within a status quo. This is like people who work within the Democratic Party and that kind of thing, right? Um, and they call that like, he called it like a symbiotic strategy. Well, as we just discussed, that's really not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and then the other strategy is, is the exact opposite, which is he calls ruptural strategy, right? This is 1917 revolutionary type stuff. Well, we're not in a position to do that. Right. Uh, whether our historical conjuncture is even favorable to revolution, nobody's organized for it. You know, like there's not there's not even a global left at this point. Right. You know? So like that that strategy is out the window too. And the only other strategy is the strategy of of pessimism after the world wars. You know, on some level, it was like what the new left was when it was at its best. Like there's criticisms of the new left that are, are valid, but um, it's the interstitial strategy is what he talks about, right? This is where you create spaces of consciousness and spaces of solidarity and reality. You construct reality outside of the control of the state itself, right? Third, third spaces, if you will, but in like a political sense. And that's where you end up finding refuge in, you know, hip hop, pop culture, creating your own knowledge base, that kind of thing. And that's a there's a huge trap in that because that stuff is not going to be what liberates us, you know. But those are that strategy is available. Ruptural strategies are not available, right? And electoral strategies or symbiotic strategies, we 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 keep playing that game, but it doesn't look good. Right. So those are our those are the three strategic options that uh, Eric Olinwright laid out as being available to us. And they all suck. And this is why the pessimism is valid. Oh, <laughs> uh, then I, I actually think that electoral politics is a dead end. I mean, it is pessimistic for me because, you know, the systems, Western liberal democracy, in my view, has been set up to maintain uh, the power of the ruling class. Um, so, you know, it seemed to me, looking at the history of Western liberal democracy, it just looks like a sham where, you know, workers are given a, a, a sort of a, a imagined uh, say in the system where actually there's no say. And I do think that, you know, it does seem like there are no ways for evolution. But for me, that is the open uh, you know, an open possibility. And at the moment, looking at the Palestine movement against, you know, the genocide of Palestine, these sorts of movements are giving me hope. And 
yeah, I love the mention of hip hop throughout your work. You know, I've been seeing that <laughs> 90s hip hop, which I love as well. You know, I've, uh, I'm I've obsessed, discovered, yeah. it. <laughs> discovered it later in my life. But I just, yeah, this is all I listen to now. And I think that historically, art and hip hop have played a, you know, art, music, literature have played a role in the revolutions across the world. And yeah, for me, I don't think the Democratic Party is a lesser evil. Um, and I actually don't think that, you know, United States is not a fascist power. Like, how can, you know, look at the 20th century alone. United States has been a fascist power in the world. It has killed over one million people in, in the Middle East in, in, since, you know, the dawn of the new millennium. Um, and it continues its death dance across the world, not just, bef- you know, after, 20- after 2000, but even before that as well. And the domestic um, security apparatus it has been so horrific to black people, to indigenous people, to working class people that I don't know uh, it, from what point of view can you can we say that it's not fascist? Um, yeah, of course, it's different perspectives, but I just find that um, the Democratic Party is not only the problem, it you know, not only a problem, it might be even a bigger problem because it gives us a semblance of being a lesser evil when actually what it does is it continues the same system um, that is, you know, killing millions of people, displacing millions of people every year and drumming, you know, uh, the drums of war as we see right now. I mean, the AUKUS deal, you know, the rising tensions with China, which you comment on all the time, these are being drummed on by... Democrats and look at Hillary Clinton. Um, I was going to bring her up if you didn't. The the Democrats will not save us. I hope you didn't think that I was saying that. Like this is my disaffection with my own, like the the elite part of the ruling class that would invite me to shit. You know, which is basically no more. Like my disaffection from them, my alienation from them, is the reality that they're perpetuating these things. I would not call them fascist. I mean, that's like a, a difference of of kind or degree or whatever. Like we might disagree about that, but like they don't. They certainly don't recognize their role in perpetuating these problems. Throw some quick things at you that should be radicalizing to everybody. Okay. 14 million people died as a result of Cold War conflicts, and the U.S. was involved in most of those, okay? There were 60 U.S. attempts at regime change during the Cold War, 44 of which saw the U.S. take the side of autocracy, okay? This is all separate from, like, Vietnam War, separate from the Jakarta method and exporting genocidal tactics to Latin America. This is separate from exploiting the non-sovereign Pacific, as a platform for power projection and all these other fantasies and stuff. The war on terror between 2001 and 2018, the war on terror was at its peak. During that period of time, the number of Salafi jihadist militants around the world increased, increased 400%. That's according to CSIS, which is a ruling class think tank, right? 400%. Okay. When you see those realities, when you recognize those numbers, when you recognize the things that are being done in the name of liberal internationalism or freedom or rules-based order or whatever the fuck, it gives the lie to everything, you know? And then, But then the question is, what can you do? And once again, it's like... No, this... let's not vote for Democrats. No, let's <laughs> not say that. 
the Democrats are doing this. Look at you know all these. That's things not you a, your your opposition. Like I, I don't want to get into an argument with you about this. Your opposition to voting doesn't help anything. Okay, it's not like whether I'm I'm not saying elections will save us. I'm saying just check the fucking box and then go protest. Then go have a revolution. D- just don't avoid checking the box and let just reactionaries vote. That's insane. Don't give up the field. Contest every space. Contest every space, including the electoral space, you know? But don't think that contesting any one site is going to be the difference. That's the thing. You, you're worried about the, the inadvertent legitimation of the ruling class that happens because we ticked a box on a voting form. But like, that's not, to me, reasonable. Just check the fucking box and then keep going on your strategy. You know, keep doing what you got to do. And so, like, the the starting point has to be not vote or don't vote. You definitely fucking vote. But the starting point has to be have a worldview, have a perspective that demands certain kinds of change and then demand those change, those changes of whoever's in power. And the, the technique for demanding those changes, it's, it may depend on circumstances. Protest in the street, canvassing, organizing, putting up new candidates, if 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 you have are okay with blood on your hands, revolution. You know what I mean? I don't. You know, like that's the, the method is open ended, but we the having a worldview and then trying to force change to to meet that worldview, I think is important. And a lot of times we're like, well, everything's fucked up, but we there's not enough of like a well. In what ways should things change? Like there are people with worldviews. There are coherent worldviews to be had. Uh, but there's not like a campaign around them, you know, a concerted effort, what we would call a strategy. And so, uh, you know, I, I think starting with with a goal of anti-militarism or peace or, you know, deconstructing national security states as much as we can is a reasonable starting point. And I think that is what would bridge people who are even on like very different sides of the sort of progressive spectrum. I think this um, kind of ties back and especially the, you know, the calls to just check the fucking box into this <laughs> uh, grand strategy in the book, which is uh, progressive pragmatism. And as soon as the word pragmatism comes up and, and progressive spaces, people are like, oh shit, no, like don't, don't get into that. Like now you're being an incrementalist or you're, um, you're giving stuff away to the, the powers that be by taking a pragmatic viewpoint um, in terms of the power structures that currently exist. But where do you come at that from in terms of the grand strategy around this? So progressive pragmatism is like, it's a category that's, I think, unique to the US. There's a cross section of like Ezra Klein types. Elizabeth Warren was one of these actually, where it's like, they're willing to do things like national security Keynesianism or industrial policy. Uh, She had an economic plan that was called like Patriot, the patriotism plan or some shit. I mean, literally she was going to do economic. And this was one of my concerns, my reservations with her, in fact, but like that is, that is pragmatism in the sense that like, there's a concrete plan in that way of thinking that is addressing some of the things that we identified as problems of the status quo problems of liberal internationalism. Right. And it's addressing some of those things. The trouble is of course, it creates new problems or it masks certain old problems while addressing others. Right. So it's like, it's not, it's kind of solutionless in my view in a way. Um, 
but it does, it's a reality. Like it's not something I was advocating for. It's like, that's a category of person that exists out there. Like there's a way of thinking that is, is can claim fidelity to sort of like left progressive principles. And it advocates these things that other leftists and progressives would find abhorrent. Right. But that person exists, that way of thinking exists. And so it's like, let's, let's talk about that. Right. And so that's one of the multiple ways of, of thinking that the book kind of unpacks. Yeah. And I think like in the New Zealand context, maybe you'd apply that to uh, leftists that join think tanks um, or other uh, kind of groups in the PR um, consultancy space. Well, like, oh, we're mm. just going to make the Labour Party better. <laughs> and, and, but just become part of that that carousel, right, without really moving the dial in a structural sense because they're so inward-looking in terms of the political project that there is no strategy for significant change. Yeah. The New Zealand <laughs> Labour Party is not good. <laughs> it's, it's the Democratic Party of New Zealand. It is. Know? It is, yeah. I mean, we've had this discussion on the podcast, and I, I think this is something you've brought up previously as well, Josephine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not happy with the New Zealand Labour Party. Um, yeah, the kindness politics and whatnot, which is all, you know, rooted in neoliberalism. Um, yeah, it is. This is a, a very neoliberal country, New Zealand. Like, it's it's jarring, actually. Yeah. yeah. More so and than people admit or are even aware of, um, I think, because some of the key structures that would hold neoliberalism back were never built. And I think that's tends to be the main problem. And it means that like something like what's happening right now with the National Party, they just come in and like, we're just going to get rid of all this stuff. And everyone's like, oh, okay, I guess that's what we expected. One of the really scary trends that's happening right now globally is like the US is sort of breaking down the structures of the global economy you know, like neoliberal globalization had lots of ills, but it also like created this corporate constituency of people who want want stability and like at least at least not be jingoists. And that is not some great position that there's no horizon in that. That's not a great position to adopt. But like that was the sort of upside or silver lining of neoliberal globalization. The U.S. is breaking all of those forces down, all of those structures down in favor of nationalist militarism, in favor of like a a mercantilism attached to an ethno-nationalism and a patriotism and then industrial policy and supply chain resilience, quote unquote, and all this stuff is being like pushed under that's what it that's what's holding it all is these ethno-nationalist containers you know the 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 great disturbing trend is that while america is doing that and while one or two other european nations are doing that most of the rest of the world can't do that literally you know like the the country who has the you know world's reserve currency can pull some of this shit off and throw trillions of dollars at you know nonsense uh, industrial policy, but like other countries cannot necessarily do that. And so one of the things that's happening while America is like building a new nationalist type e economic structure, countries like New Zealand are still stuck in neoliberalism. Most of the developing world is living under some form of like neoliberal economic order while the hegemon is doing economic nationalism. Like, that's the worst combination I could possibly fucking imagine. 
you know, and that's what we're headed toward. That's well, that what's happening us, in real time. That brings us to the second um, kind of progressive grand strategy that you cover, which is anti-hegemonism. How do you oh, yeah. actually see that playing out? So anti-hegemonism is is basically like, it, it's just anti-imperialism, you know, but for from the U.S. context where a an anti-imperialist or self a self-identified anti-imperialist in the US context is looking at the world and seeing American imperialism and American militarism as at the heart of it's kind of the root cause fruit of the poisonous tree or whatever of like so many ills that we see out in the world right and so if that's the root cause of problems then the solution is to deconstruct that to like reverse engineer it or whatever or bridle bridle that shit and that means giving up dollar supremacy. That means un like not having 700 bases around the world. It means not having security alliances sort of in general or forward military presence in general, you know. Um, and the trouble or the risk or the, the other side of that is that it, to do that realistically, it also means coming to accommodations with adversaries, which uh, in America... You know, everything is Munich 1938 all the time. So like that, the fear is always like, oh, we can't we can't accommodate our adversaries because then it's Munich all over again. Um, but so like that metaphor lives law looms large in the policymaker imagination. And there there may be cases where there's something to that. Like I don't want to apologize for a despotic regimes abroad, but um, the anti-hegemonist posture is a kind of America-focused anti-imperialism. And so yeah. The, the everything starts with packing it in, essentially, including, you know, multilateralizing the world's reserve currency if necessary. How do you implement that, though? How do you get to a point where that becomes a functional reality? Uh, it's super hard, man. Like it's, <laughs> it's, oh, I thought it was going to be why, easy, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is why in a world where revolution is like not foreseeable at all, there has to be some people who are insiders who are pulling levers because change we want to change how the the state i mean some of us want to get rid of the state i suppose i i'm i'm agnostic about whether the state is necessary or not that's like a meta question but like the state as long as it exists we want it to we demand that it relate to the world differently in a less militarized way right if the state is the the thing that where our interests as a collective reside and there it, it expresses our collective will. Uh, it doesn't do that in the real world, but like if that's the ideal of what the state is supposed to be, well then like we have to have operators of it, agents of it that function and pull the levers and do these things. Right. And that requires a kind of knowledge base about how you do that. Um, and there's, if you're going to implement a kind of like real anti-imperialism realistically, you have to have people who can actually hold negotiations with adversaries in a way that's going to make them unlikely to move against territories in their periphery. Easier said than done, you know? Um, if you're going to uh, withdraw from the Middle East, at some point you're going to need congressional legislation. So even one superpowered human being can't do that, you know? Like you need the, the Congress to act. And so like there's a reality about how you pull levers that is just not straightforward. It's not a function of collective will. But if you can create a popular consciousness that military boots in the Middle East is bad, that genocide of Palestinians 
is bad. Like if you can create consciousness about those things, if you can create consciousness that like American primacy is bad, then that is a an entry point for people who are insiders to do something, you know? So like there's this, there's this crazy insider outsider dilemma and you have to decide like Josephine has clearly decided to be an outsider and I respect that. And that's basically what I am at this point because my opinions are intolerable to <laughs> insiders, you know? Um, but like, if you're going to influence the state's behavior, how do you do that? What are the mechanisms? What are the levers? And like, I ask that as like a, that's a genuine question that I'm like, I spend a lot of time on and the answers are not straightforward. Yeah. Um, in my view, you know, the answer to that re- lies in our understanding of power. So for example, it's not that United States common people don't recognize that military boots in the Middle East is bad. Most United States people recognize this. Recently, there were polls about, you know, ceasefire in Palestine. I think over 65% of the people um, want a ceasefire. So again, it's going back to what I said earlier, is that this, you know, the state, as you mentioned it, is really not representing um, the democratic interests of the people. It's, it's It's a facade. It is a farce. It is a, um, you know, putting dust in the eyes of people to create a sense of a say in the system when they're actually not, they don't have any say. And so then the question is, who has a say and who is controlling it and why? And to me, it, it, it relates to, you know, the ownership of the means of production, right? The ownership of the means of production in the United States is firmly in the hands of a very narrow class who also want their hands on the resources and the means of production across the world. And this is at the root of US militarism, US imperialism, and USA's internal domestic problems. And so unless we can actually change that, which I don't think we can through electoral politics, what can people do from the inside when you know everything is all owned by this narrow class of people who call the shots. They call the shots, um, you know, through lobbying. They call the shots through political donations. They call the shots through um, media control. They call the shots through um, all these different means because, you know, power from a Marxist perspective, which is where I'm coming from, uh, lies in the ownership of the means of production. And, and these states, like Western countries, are, are constructed very carefully by the ruling class for the ruling class. And yeah, and as long as we think that these are actually a means to our, our liberation, I think they will continue their death dance and their oppression of working class people. And this oppression is not only like you know, in the mass deaths that we're seeing across the world, that which you mentioned, you know, just before. Um, but it's also through the social murder of working class people um, in the West and in the global South, right? So um, if you look at, for example, the Rust Belt in the United States, how the coal miners are dying early, all these things are in the global South, how 
the mines in in Congo, where currently there's a genocide going on, um, which is also you know related to this you know the um, imperialists wanting their hands on the, on, the, on the resources there, um, how that impacts the children there, mining uh, of these rare elements and so forth. So I don't see the answers to be inside the system and. And that's the thing for me. I just want to share this, Van. Of course, we are completely disagreeing on this. Um, you know, my hope is actually on the United States power diminishing, and you know, some sort of power realignment happening. And this is how a lot of anti-imperialists from the global south view it, right? Um, Che Guevara very famously said, while envisaging the destruction of imperialism, it is necessary to un identify its head, which is no other than the United States of America. So um, somehow it, it needs to implode, <laughs> collapse, something has to happen. And this is going to be in the interest of, you know, the, the voters that you say, who, who you, you're asking to vote for a party that has committed all these crimes that you mentioned. Um, I think that it needs to be destroyed. And I, and I can only see that happening through geopolitics. So, for example, the rise of China. Um, I see that as, a, you know, a hopeful moment for the world. You might not. Um, Definitely not. Let me be on record. I do yeah. not see China's rise as a hopeful anything. I actually do. And a very good example is, is I'll just give you an example. Um Recently in, in the United Nations, after October 7, um, there was a vote and um, most Pacific Island countries um, whom have been, you know, recently in this, in this um, tug of war between the West and China um, and after China's visit to uh, Solomon Islands in 2022, um, United States and the West have been, you know, which who had forgotten these countries announcing big aid programs and all those things and they all voted against the ceasefire whereas there was one country that voted for supported ceasefire and that was the country that had a security agreement with china the solomon islands and so and and looking at the leftists from for example from from africa and how they talk about um china's dealings with africa for example or um, scholars like Akala talking about China's dealings with the Caribbean. I actually do see hope in that sort of a uh, so, sort of a future. Um, yeah, I just don't see it happening through electoral politics, which you don't either. You're talking about, yeah, you know, right. yeah, you're talking about uh, opting for the lesser evil in the meantime while we do other things. But uh, yeah, I just don't see them as the left are evil, I actually see them as probably equal or greater evil in terms of their impact on the global south. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the party um, of Obama who, who who simultaneously bombed seven seven countries, right? Um, who deported more people than than Trump did um, in his in, in his first term. Um, so it, and, you know, Hillary Clinton, who laughed after destroying Libya, uh, which was the most prosperous country in Africa. So uh, leftists in the global south are seeing this differently. Um, and we see it as, you know, the the sort of any alternative at this point to the United States. But, you know, I have different views on how China has been operating. Um, it's better than the United States. And it, interestingly, when I went to a, a conference in 
in Australia in 2019 at uh, the Australian National University, um, there was a, you know, it was the foremost security expert in Australia talking about how, you know, um, despite its history, we must, we must support the West and the United States because it is better uh, than China. And I asked him over there, like, how dare you? We are sitting in, in the land stolen from Aboriginal people here uh, against whom systematic genocide has happened um, in Australia. And we are all, this is an Asia Pacific conference that we were having. Uh, we are all from people who, who have been, you know, at the receiving end of, of Western imperialism. How dare you say that this imperialism is better than the other? And, you know, from our assessment in the global south, China is a better alternative. Yeah, just super quick. I don't want to get into a conversation about China because it's like an entire big thing. But this is and this is a valid point of disagreement within the left globally and in the U.S., like how, how to interpret China. But one thing I would say is that, like, no great power is ever going to be great for you. No great power is going to save you. It doesn't matter if it's our flag or the other guy's flag or whatever. That's just mis misleading, I think. And so there has to be liberation is on the other side of a kind of bridling of American power, I think. But there, the we would call that like multipolarity, right? Post unipolarity, multipolarity. The problem is there's like the multipolarity is not any one thing. A diffusion of power as opposed to a concentration of power is not inherently good or bad. It can it can cash out in different ways. And the problem is that the kind of multipolarity that's emerging, partly because of Sino-US rivalry, is an ethno-nationalist multipolarity. That is not liberatory, you know? So the multipolarity that is emerging is a terrain that favors the forces of reaction. Full stop. It doesn't mean there aren't good things that could come out of it, but you could say the same thing about nonsense liberal internationalism. There were good things that come out of it, you know? And so, like, it's the balance. What, what's the balance of it, you know? And what so, good things, what good things have come out of liberal internationalism? More wealth, more wealth has been created. That I'm not. You're 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 baiting me to defend liberal internationalism, and I came <laughs> on here critiquing it. So thank you, but no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I just don't think it has. But there have been alternatives to liberal internationalism that have actually been good, and I think. Uh, you know, I can, I can, I can give you the example of of Soviet Union's, uh, you know, um, in, influence in the anti-colonial movement globally, and also the trade mo union movements here in New Zealand and across the world. Um, there have been alternatives to liberal capitalist and, and internationalism that have actually supported working class movements across the world. And this is my concern. Either we need a system where our movements in the global South, which have been ravaged from, you know, imperialism and capitalism, which are two systems we can't separate. Um, how can we allow these people to, you know, build the movements that can liberate themselves? We need non-interventionist sort of uh, system. And yeah. looking at the history of, of these great powers, uh, United States and China, it seems very clearly to me that one is extremely uh, interventionist. And many scholars from the global south have assessed China's 
China's interactions with the rest of the world and actually, you know, its history since the war with India in the 60s hasn't really involved in, you know, interventions or wars or anything like that. So, yeah, I don't know. I just have a, I assess things differently. And for me, it's it's about what are the principles that under, underline a state rather than the state itself. In the West, we see states that are underlined by the principle of capitalism and organizing production on the on the basis of the means of production on on the basis of private ownership of the mean, means of production and the basis of profits over people and this is the problem when we have an alternative to that you know globally i think the left needs to be supportive of it or you know moving towards such alternatives um anyway would you say uh, Josephine, that china is the lesser of two evils <laughs> Ah, no, actually, I actually think that China is a progressive force. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hard disagree, but it's getting into this is going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good, though, because, like, what's really interesting and, and, you know, wouldn't have had these conversations when we're getting into, like, the bigger picture stuff is the diversity of thought on the left or in progressive circles is far more apparent than anything from the center rightwards like there's so much more the, like, like useful disagreement here also like the what is to be done question is the area where there's an opportunity for convergence because my analysis of china clearly not the same as josephine's but the on the what is to be done question there there might actually be quite a bit of convergence because the the status quo is is a pretty nightmarish trajectory, you know? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of steps that need to be taken before we get to the point where either China becomes imperialist um, and becomes a hegemon in its own right, or uh, multipolarity, or China acts as a progressive force. Like, we're, we're a, a number of decades away from that um, outside of international societal collapse, um, which is another problem altogether uh, and, and precludes everything. Just before we, I- like... Oh, yeah. Sorry, Jessica. I, I hope at some point that I get to discuss why I think, you know. Um, We're China's definitely going to have that conversation. Some other time, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah when we but, have. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have, I have a, a book's worth of thoughts about that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to um, just lastly touch on this um, final grand strategy, which is uh, peacemaking. Uh, and you touched on this earlier, Ben. Uh, you're serious about talking about this book. I keep having like an open-ended conversation. You keep coming back to the book. <laughs> man, like we got, we got to promo you, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. No, like because this is the thing is like we don't the left doesn't have a grand strategy and we and due to that fact we have the this um kind of delineation or divergent endpoints that mean that it's harder to focus on where we do come together, where where we do converge. Um so yeah, I, I do want to like keep coming back to these these ideals and these principles because it's what helps us build a map for reaching those points of divergence, um, which I think should be the end goal of any any progressive, is we want to get to a point where our different views of utopia uh, are actually plausible. Um, and because yeah. we're, we're, we're nowhere near that currently. We're so far away. Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Um, just quickly, the peacemaking view. So these three grand strategies, these are ideal type strategies, which is to say they're like internally coherent logics right? Surfacing the assumptions, what they prioritize, et cetera. And then that cashes out as a a fully formed foreign policy agenda. 
and each one has its own fully formed foreign policy agenda. There's areas where they converge, just like there's areas where various people on the left converge. But um, the the I, I wanted to be clear about like what these different schools of thought are. So these are like non-revolutionary leftist discourses about uh, what is to be done in essence in foreign policy. And the, the one of the, the the short version I should have mentioned up front for progressive pragmatism, the priority goal is equality. And there's all kinds of ways you can cash that out. It's a capacious term, but the belief is that doing X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, uh, in the name of equality will unlock peace and democracy, right? For anti-hegemonism, the priority is American democracy. De-imperialize, restore American democracy, which is missing in action. And that will unlock peace and equality. And the peacemaking grand strategy prioritizes peace itself. And this is what the new left movement did in the 60s when it was at its best. There's things we can critique. But it was peace is the way to unlock democracy and equality, right? And so it's not that one of these is right or wrong, even though you could make that argument. It's that these are different ways of prioritizing the same broad ends. And this matters because what you prioritize affects what kinds of policies you ought to try and enact in the world, you know? Um, and so when you make peace the priority, and that's how you unlock democracy uh, and and um, equality, it's a prefigurative logic, which is to say like the be the change type thing, you know? So like you have to act peacefully in the world in order for the world to become more peaceful, right? The other two grand strategies are a little bit more like calculating instrumental logics Peacemaking is a prefigurative logic. And so to make the world more peaceful, you have to stop playing balance of power games. You have to stop doing traditional arms racing militarist geopolitics, and you have to start engaging with adversaries where they're at in reality and trying to establish cooperative security regimes arms control, mutual threat reduction, right? And the 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 goal of peacemaking is nothing short of of actual disarmament. You know, and and the 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 limitation or the scope condition, the non-revolutionary nature of it is that you have to do that in a way that preserves least harm to to those who would be affected by what you do, right? And so you have to uh, you can't just literally destroy all your weapons on day one. You have to have non-offensive defense strategies. You have to create, you have to convert your military into the kind that has soldiers without enemies, right? You have to start engaging in a kind of arms control that's not tit-for-tat reciprocity. You have to start making unilateral concessions of your own. You have to start deconstructing your own power in a way recognizing that that's what unlocks reciprocity later from your enemies or whatever and that's how enemies can be changed into friends you don't you don't hold you don't hold a better world hostage because your enemy doesn't do what you want them to do you have to actually start taking steps yourself 
And then that will change the context within which your enemy decides things. And that's how it becomes possible to not be enemies anymore. Right. So that's the, that's the, the peacemaking sort of, you know, approach in a nutshell. Yeah. But, but how are you going to do this then? Um, when you, you yourself mentioned how, you know, it's not democracy in practice and, you know, the foreign policy, you, you know, you were inside that system. Uh, it's not determined by democratic interests. It's determined by the interests of the military industrial complex. Um, you know, convincing people is not the problem. I think people know this and they are already, you know, to uh, tending towards a peaceful sort of um, um, position on most conflicts, right? At the moment, these sorts of wars are so unpopular in the United States. But I mean, where I would disagree with you is it's not just, you know, democracy that's not working in practice. United States represent democracy that's not working in theory. It's set up in ways that are undemocratic. And just an exercise of voting once in four years is not is not any proof of democracy. So it's, I just, yeah. You say that as if I disagree with you, but like, I feel like I said those exact same things a few minutes ago. Like, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, like, but then how is it that we can make the system which is operating on the, on the, on the intent of profits? Well, that's the question, right? You it's... actually accept this is the question. It's, it's great that we argue this and we say this, I just don't think we can unless we unseat these powerful people um, somehow, which I don't think can happen, which you also don't think can happen. We need to organize outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think... is that your solution? Yeah. Organizing outside. Oh, so, I mean, yes and no. Like, I, I think I said earlier, like, everything has to be contested. There shouldn't be a space that we just get abandon entirely. And I think this, the state and the policy apparatus counts as that too. Um, and so every if everything is contested, then like, well, you do elections, but you don't count on it, right? You do policy advocacy, but you don't count on it. You do protesting, but you don't count on it. You make a new hip hop record, but you don't count on it. You know, but like all of these things together is uh maybe the source of hope. I don't know. Like it would be great to end this on like an optimistic note, Sorry, but not I, <laughs> <laughs> well, like what I'd say as well as like, you know, as, as far as the electoral uh, politics conversation goes, the power of the state and the, the institutions of the state are something that fascists want. I'm going to start trying to stop them from getting it, yeah. you know, like, because without that power, it's harder for them to do what they want to do. And, and that goes, you know, like, We'll all have, well, maybe not. I don't know. But in, in the out in the real world, uh, there are spaces that white supremacists or or fascists or whatever stripe of regressive reactionary politics you want to kind of put on it will, will show up in your space, and you can test that space as well. You know, one of the yeah. um, kind of pans around like rallying and protesting. Like, if someone shows up with a Nazi sign, you kick them out, or it's a Nazi rally, right? They, they they are trying good, to yeah. actively trying to contest these spaces and that applies to government that applies to the state as well that applies to businesses um it's I think the reason we don't talk about this a lot and we don't talk about it in, in detail um, or in a way that is maybe useful 
is because it just becomes incredibly daunting incredibly quickly, knowing that, you know, you're going down to the supermarket, you're going to end up contesting that space at some point, you know, as fascist creep continues. This is that um, being on the left is exhausting. Yeah, you know it is. I mean? It like, is. But this is why it's so important to like have these discussions and be like, okay, so here are the here's the, the big view, right? Like, what are we working towards? What what is the grand strategy? And you know, we've gone through a few of them um, in this conversation today. Uh, and I, I, none none of them by themselves are going to be the be, in, be all and all, right? They they all have have weaknesses and, and problems. But having a set of shared goals uh, that we can focus on as progressives that we can work work towards as progressives and understanding what the core tenets and principles of those are is something that can give us hope, I think. Because if we know, okay, we want um, to disestablish the imperial core, you know, like if, if we want to work against hegemony, uh, then there are active things we need to be doing at, at any given time in our polit- political activities. And, you know, in New Zealand, that is part of it's going to be voting, you know, we've, we've got MMP, we've got some form of proportional representation here uh, and getting people within the halls of power who are more anti-imperial because then they get the resources and access to state infrastructure and institutions where they can pull one or two levers that move us in a slightly more favorable direction to that grand strategy, to, to the end point. And then, you know, you do book clubs and you do organizing, you get together for solidarity uh, movements and protests and every step along the way, you are, uh, I think you said it somewhere uh, earlier in the conversation, you're creating that space, Ben. Um, you are creating that sense uh, that people do not want, uh, you know, endless war or endless imperialism. And that puts pressure on decision makers, whether political or or wherever else, uh, to act in alignment with that rather than what their natural interests might be as an agent of um, capitalism or imperialism or, or what have you. And we, I think we do see that those changes occur. Um, when we had Tamim on uh, the other week, Josephine, uh, and he was talking about it in, in relation to uh, Gaza. Um, and he was saying, it's good that, you know, these things are changing, but remember that in terms of uh, calling for things closer to an outright ceasefire, um, across the West, but it's not politicians who are making these decisions. It is the people on the ground who are showing their numbers uh, and putting pressure on the politicians to act in that way. Uh, and you know, it's a very like specific example, but it's broader than that. Yeah, that I agree with that. It's uh, bottom up. Eh? Like when you look at um, uh, New Zealand's foreign policy history, the moments of hope in, in New Zealand's foreign policy history actually come from the ground up. Um, rather than top down. So yeah, I do agree that that's where our hopes lie. Um, uh, you know, in another conversation we had with Adam Arata, she talked about how she believes in people power. It's people power that can bring these changes that Van and you know, and I agree with the demilitarization piece being a, you know a fundamental requirement for liberation of humanity. So yeah, people power it is. Yeah, I mean, every the the I have to be careful how I phrase this. Every progressive looking, every good thing that's happened in U.S. foreign policy happened as a result of pressure from the radical elements of American society or from elsewhere. Like the elites who control policy 
never did some great idea on their own. You know, they didn't get out of Vietnam because they thought it was a good idea in a vacuum. They got out of Vietnam because millions of people demanded it. Right now, we're going through a process where Biden is trying to ignore demands for a ceasefire uh, on Gaza for Israel. But eventually, the pressure is building. Where is the pressure coming from? It's coming from the streets. It's coming from mass opinion, you know? And it's starting to trickle into things that he pays attention to, like opinion polls, into these you know, elite brunch conversations that they have behind closed doors. It's translating into these the way that they're reframing action memos and policy decisions and debates at the National Security Council. And if that pressure sustains, like the Vietnam War, or it keeps growing, you can't ignore it at a certain point. And it starts to actually affect the decisions and the choices that people in power are making. That should not be our that we we can't like throw up our hands and be like hooray but with like Biden may support a ceasefire between now and 2024 or the ne next election right he might right now it looks pretty bleak but like if he does that are we supposed to give him fucking credit no who should get credit the people who've been getting arrested protesting right that's how it's always worked the best of the american tradition owes to radical elements. It owes to mass protests. It owes to that. You know, it owes to critique. Um, there's just a way in which people in power narrate these things in like self-congratulatory ways. Um, so that's something to watch out for because like the pressure for a ceasefire is so strong. I think it will, I think it will happen eventually. But um in the meantime, it's pretty brutal. And when it happens, Everyone who's a Bidenista is going to be like, you need to give this man credit four more years, blah, blah, blah. We need to not, you know, we need to give credit where credit's due and credit's from the streets. I think it's a, a pretty good place to, to end the whole conversation because it's been going on for a while, if nothing else. Um, <laughs> where can where can people find your book then? Uh, it's with Cambridge University Press, but it's in all the places where people sell books. So like bookshop.org, Amazon, if you love Bezos, um, <laughs> Josephine, I know you do. <laughs> Big Bezos fans here on one of 200. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. Jeff. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. And where can people find you online if they want to uh, listen to your musings? Uh, I'm Googleable. I, there's uh, I think I'm on Twitter still. Yeah. Wonk VJ. Fantastic. Oh, I have a podcast too. You can listen to that. <laughs> What's it called? Undiplomatic and the newsletter also called undiplomatic. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. This was super fun. This was this was spicy in the best way. Thank you, Josephine, especially. <laughs> oh, thank you both. And Kakiteano to our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for listening, everyone. We may, as I said at the start, we may have one more podcast for you by the end of the year. I have I don't know. It's not in the schedule, but I might just pick up my microphone and blather into it for an hour. Uh just just for you. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, share it around. There is good discussion about international relations on the left oh it, it, like in Aotearoa it does exist um despite what it seems like out there uh, I, I know it looks pretty fucking sparse uh but these conversations are happening and as I said uh, earlier in the conversation as it did get spicy uh there is more disagreement and variation in opinion on the progressive side than there is anywhere to the right of center um where it tends to just not even be talked about 
So get involved, uh, start talking to people, uh, share, share these conversations around uh, and get organizing, uh, get out on the street and yeah, connect with people. That's been another episode. We'll catch you whenever next time is. It's artifices, Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain